The following podcast contains advertisements. If you prefer a podcast without advertisements, you can sign up for our ad-free version at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. You'll get rid of the ads and we'll be very grateful. This is there in writing. It is the ad exchange's legal agreement with the advertiser, and we're asking them to enforce it. So what we're doing is we're empowering advertisers to go to their ad exchanges and ask them questions and ask them to cut these people off on behalf of their customers and on behalf of their values. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 27th, 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. And once again, we're talking about online ads. As we've discussed on the show, online advertisements are the shifting, unstable sand on which the contemporary internet is built. And one of the many, many ways in which the online ad ecosystem is confusing and opaque involves how advertisers can find their ads popping up alongside content they'd rather not be associated with. And, all too often, not having any idea how that happened. This week, Evelyn Duick and I spoke to Nandi Nijami and Claire Atkin of the Check My Ads Institute. Their goal is to serve as a watchdog for the ad industry, and they've just started a campaign to let companies know, and call them out, when their ads are showing up next to content published by far-right figures, like Steve Bannon, who supported the January 6th insurrection, So what is it about the ad industry that makes things so opaque, even for the companies paying to have their ads appear online? What techniques do Claire and Nandini use to trace ad distribution? And how do advertisers usually respond when Check My Ads lets them know they're funding what's called brand unsafe content? It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 27th, defunding the insurrectionists. We wanted to start broadly. What's your goal at Check My Ads? And how did you come to be interested in doing this kind of work? So our goal at Check My Ads is to be the ad tech watchdog. We realize that there is no one out there enforcing this $400 billion industry and the standards that they have set for themselves. And our first mission is to dismantle the disinformation economy. So we publish stories about when ad exchanges are working directly with publishers of hate speech and disinformation. Great. And so to keep sort of laying the groundwork for our discussion, I think at the center of a lot of what you're doing, uh, and frankly, everything to do with the internet is the concept of brand safety. Regular listeners are probably really bored of hearing me say that brand safety is the biggest driver uh, of the shape of our online ecosystem that we never talk about. So let's talk about it a little bit. How would you define brand safety and how is it relevant to what you're doing at Check My Ads? Brand safety is the practice of keeping your brand safe from toxic and dangerous content on the web. That was the original goal of brand safety. Today, brand safety has evolved to include, in our opinion, disinformation, hate speech, and other content that leads to real-world violence and harm. Yeah, so it's the idea that as a brand, you don't want to be sponsoring anything that is antithetical to your brand values. When you're advertising on the open web, you can be anywhere on the open web. So that's like literally any website, unless you set 
guidelines about where you don't want to be. And advertisers en masse have basically decided that they don't want to be anywhere near things that promote uh, drugs, things that promote violence, things that promote uh, sometimes pornography. It depends on the ad. And they have said sort of universally within the industry that there is there is this floor that is like the brand, the brand safety floor where the bar is on the floor for this. So when we're discussing the disinformation economy or hate speech, we're always talking about the brand safety floor, like the things that are most obviously brand unsafe for most advertisers. That's right. And, you know, most advertisers do agree that they don't want their ads on hate speech and disinformation. I mean, that umbrella covers so many things that advertisers don't want to be associated with. And that includes very specific things like racism and xenophobia, transphobia, misogyny, uh, sexism, and so on. Back in 2016, I was running Sleeping Giants, the first social media campaign that alerted advertisers that their ads were on Breitbart. And this was like some of the biggest brands in the world learning for the first time that their ads were funding you know, Breitbart's disinformation. And um, in fact, one of the the first brands to publicly acknowledge and block Breitbart was Kellogg's, the cereal company. And that was because they they clearly did not want their ads to be funding things that were bad for their brand, first of all, and and their customers and stakeholders as well. So Claire, you've you've mentioned this idea of the disinformation economy, and I think you've kind of touched on that in terms of discussing advertising and brand safety. But can you spell out what you what you mean there? Because I think if I'm getting you right, you are referring to economy not in a metaphorical sense, but in a in a literal sense in terms of the exchange of money. Is that right? That is absolutely right. So we are dealing with a media landscape where because of digital advertising clickbait is profitable. So the more clicks that a website receives, the more money they will get because the more advertising they will get. And what that means is that when you incite a certain emotion within an audience, you're going to get more advertising. So we have created this economy where the bad faith publication of content around especially sensitive social issues like COVID-19, Black Lives Matter, transphobia, anything that they can really whip their audience up with, they will make money off of it thanks to digital advertising unless something changes in the digital advertising economy. And that's what we're advocating for. Yeah. And that really means that we need to help advertisers realize that, no, this is not content that is on you know, one side or, or another side of the political spectrum, which is how a lot of advertisers and the industry as a whole seems to be interpreting it today. We need them to understand and, again, use these very specific uh, terms like we did before around racism or, you know, COVID disinformation, which which seeks to mislead the public about the efficacy of vaccines and so on. And we need to put a stake in the ground as advertisers and say, we're not going to fund this because this is bad for uh, not only our customers, but it's bad for the society that we want to live in and, and operate our businesses in. And that that really is part of the battle that Claire and I are taking on at Check My Ads. We realize that there's a lot of misinformation about disinformation in the industry. And so we 
Um, we're seeking to educate and we're seeking to help advertisers find their way forward in this industry. Can I ask to get a little bit more specific on the idea of brand unsafe? Like when you're suggesting to advertisers that they don't want to appear next to certain content, are you appealing to a commercial consideration or are you asking them to take a political stance? Like, I don't know that people think of Special K as, you know, a social justice warrior company. Um, and I'm not sure that they would, I don't know uh, if they would necessarily want to be uh, thought of in those terms. So is the question of brand unsafety purely a commercial consideration or is it something uh, more values oriented? I guess I'm asking, you know, are, are you purely appealing to their business interests or some sort of other uh, value system? That is such a good question. And I have two answers for you. So the first is that we thought that it was going to be a question of PR, and we thought that it was going to be a question of brand reputation. And when we launched Check My Ads as an agency first, before we were a nonprofit watchdog organization, we were an agency helping Fortune 500 companies stop funding hate speech and disinformation with their ads. And we never reached out to advertisers. We only worked with inbounds. So they always came to us. And they were concerned from a public relations perspective, of course. But what we actually learned is that the people themselves doing the advertising, running the campaigns, making the case for whatever they were doing within their marketing strategy, they themselves could not stomach the idea that the money that they were spending, these hundreds of millions of dollars that they were spending on the open web was going to fund things that made their families, their communities, their friends more endangered. So I realized that I had been unfair, that I was thinking about it only from a business perspective, but actually, you know, marketers are human too. They all, they, we all live in the same society and we're all concerned about the same thing. And so the people we work with are people who are taking a personal responsibility for where the money goes. The second part of my answer is that no, advertisers do not want to be political. So to get around that, what we do is we always say, don't look at this from a political landscape. You are not taking a political stance with your advertising unless you want to do that. Instead, you can look at it in terms of disinformation versus journalistic standards. And when you think about it in terms of journalistic standards, then the politics part falls away a little bit. And that makes it a lot easier to have the conversation about what is and is not appropriate use of your brand logo, of your brand ad campaign dollars. And it clears up a lot of the problems that are in front of us. Yeah. And I, I'll add that, you know, marketers today care so much about brand. Brand is the most important thing to a business today more than ever, you know, brand equity, brand reputation, how people feel about us, how they're talking about us on social media, that matters a lot. So for a marketer that spends so much time deciding what your logo looks like on your product, what your uh, brand colors are going to be, you know, making your campaigns pixel perfect, it's a bit ridiculous to think that you don't know where your ads are being placed after all that work. Are you just throwing your ads up on the internet on on disinformation sites and, and and all kinds of dark corners of the web? And that's what we're trying to get at because marketers today have almost forgotten what it what it means to place your ads on the internet because for the most part, 
we have given that task away to ad tech companies that do that job for us. So when it comes to taking back that control of where our ads are going, marketers don't even know where to start. And so that's what we we help them to do. So let's talk about the the technical aspect of this. How does brand safety normally work? Like for a major brand that's concerned about their brand, you know, not appearing against something that they don't like, what kind of steps or tools or technology would they typically use to prevent their content appearing next to material that they think might harm their public image? And how sophisticated is that technology? So within the ad tech world, there is a whole industry that is dedicated to brand safety. And those companies are companies like Integral Ad Science, Double Verify, Moat, Grapeshot, Comscore. There's a there's a whole bunch that that you can sort of add on to your ad campaign to say, please help me navigate where my ads should go and where they shouldn't go. And they are very good at one specific thing. They are very good at noticing when there is a word on a page and then blocking an ad or letting an ad go onto the page, depending on whether that word is, for instance, in the URL. And over and over again, we have found that this multi-million, like many multi-million dollar industry is doing far more harm than good when it comes to the purpose of brand safety, which is to make sure your ads stay on the good sites and make sure they do not go onto the bad sites. Because it turns out disinformation and hate speech is not identifiable using keywords. But news articles about the same kind of subjects that you might assume bad faith publishers would talk about are very easily blocked by keyword lists. So we've actually found and reported on the problem, which is that News is getting blocked by the brand safety industry and disinformation is getting a hall pass. They also use this other technology that they started to push, especially in the last few years, because the concept of brand safety is a number one priority for marketers today. Like every marketer on the market (laughs) cares about brand safety. And so they've introduced what they say is a sophisticated new technology called, and they have tons of different words and terms for it. Um, you'll hear contextual analysis, contextual intelligence, semantic analysis. So it's some combination of these words. And they're all basically uh, pushing the same, quote, technology. And that is the idea that they can scan a page and figure out what the topic is, scan the page like a human and figure out what the topic is, what a human feels when they read it. So whether it's positive negative or neutral sentiment, and whether it's safe or unsafe to place a brand on based on a bunch of categories and basically like a bunch of buttons that the advertiser has has clicked. So an advertiser, well, most advertisers will want to click on positive sentiment topics about, you know, X, Y, Z, right? Like most advertisers, if, if, if you come up to an advertiser and say, do you want to advertise on positive or negative news? they're probably going to say positive, right? Like, why would we want to be on negative news? So what they do is they're categorizing the entire internet according to an algorithm, whether on on what topic it is, on whether it's positive or negative, and advertisers are just going with it. 
But the problem is advertisers don't know what's underneath that algorithm or how it works or what the results of that algorithm is. For example, if you're looking at the topic Black Lives Matter or police brutality, well, how do you know what a human is thinking, right? Like, how do you know how the algorithm decided whether a Black Lives Matter article is positive or negative? Because for some people, coverage of Black Lives Matter is a really good thing. And for others, it's not. So how does this algorithm work? How is it making those decisions? Because that algorithm is making decisions at scale for advertisers with billions and billions of dollars invested that is being scanned through this uh, this brand safety technology. The biggest advertisers in the world depend on this technology to decide how their money is distributed across the web. And we have found in our research, uh, in our newsletter branded that we've published, that overwhelmingly, this technology doesn't work. It doesn't work like they say it does. We found them blocking disproportionately advertising from anything related to crime. So what some of these brand safety technology companies do is they mistake, the algorithm mistakes articles writing about crime and the news and local news about crime. They mistake it as promoting crime. And then they count that as bad. And then they just block all of that news reporting, all that critical news reporting. We we release a, a report that found that 90 over 90% of the crime one of the crime reporters at the New York Times basically his entire beat is considered brand unsafe so just brands without even realizing it probably are keeping their ads off of of just New York Times's crime section we even found that Marilyn Stasio the New York Times book review writer for crime fiction her entire beat, like all her columns, because they use the word crime and they use words that this algorithm thinks is bad or promoting crime, her entire beat is basically unprofitable. Like the brands are not on there because, again, the algorithm thinks it's bad. So what we're experiencing as a result of both keyword block listing and this, this basically this broken, shoddy technology is that A, we don't know where the money is going. So ad, like even advertisers, the people who are using and, and buying this technology, they don't know how their money is being spent. And two, it is being overwhelmingly and disproportionately being sent to the wrong places on the internet. Yeah. So I definitely want to come back to the issue of how the speech that advertisers are interested in supporting or appearing next to might be very different to the speech that we think is important or uh, is is valuable. Um, and the way that this sort of online economy works isn't well suited to making those two align. But I want to dig in a little bit more to the questions of the failures, of the, the technical failures of this system, like how it ends up being so uh, hopeless. Because I think, you know, again, listeners won't be surprised to hear that the tech that they use is really pretty dodgy, you know, that keyword searches often misfire. And surprisingly, they can't tell the sentiment of a page uh, just by uh, using AI. We come across that problem all the time in content moderation and, and hate speech detection and things like that. But the idea that advertisers also have no idea where they're content is ending up on the on the web it might be a bit more surprising because you know we hear a lot about how sophisticated the online information ecosystem is how advertising the online advertising system is um, super effective and super you know you can get micro analysis of everything that's going on and 
Yet your website says, uh, we founded Check My Ads in response to the most pervasive problem in the advertising industry. Marketers are in the dark about where their ads end up online, and those ads are inevitably ending up in bad places on the web. And so what's driving that failure? Is it just that advertisers don't have enough bargaining power with their ad exchanges to insist on getting that information? Is it that they don't really care until something blows up and they get pressure from you? Or is it just that it's technically too difficult to track where their ads end up? Like, why um, don't they have that information? Yeah, you nailed it. It's all of those things. The people who reach out to us the most are people in comms departments who are having to deal with social media crises. And to get from the comms department to the advertising department in a Fortune 500 company, you often have to jump from silo to silo. So when we are having these conversations, we're often pulling together comms and marketing and brand and advertising. And so right off the bat, it's an exercise in corporate diplomacy, right? Just just to check your ads, just to start. Then it's technically difficult. The ad exchanges that they work with, they often don't want to give all of the data that would have been helpful to find out exactly where your ads are placed. They'll say, they'll give top line uh, key performance indicators, but they don't tell you off the bat necessarily what the conversion rate was or what URL, like what sub part of the domain you were on. And we, our clients have had to fight for that kind of data. And sometimes they get it and sometimes they don't. Right now, the power discrepancy is such that there is a handful of ad exchanges whose names most people don't know who decide where to put $400 billion every year. And we always talk about Google, we always talk about Facebook, we always talk about Twitter, but the disinformation economy makes money from these handful of ad exchanges. And these ad exchanges are so powerful that actually they're not that responsive to our clients, even if our clients spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year on their platforms. So we have to uncover who these ad exchanges are and what they're actually doing. And that's really what we see our job as. That's right. Ultimately, we believe that advertisers should be able to control where their ads are spent and how their budget is spent. They have a right to uh, do right by their company values and their company mission and to do right by their customers. And as a marketer, I know that it pains me to see brands that I know don't want to be anywhere near the stuff having their ads repeatedly show up on the exact content that they don't support. So it's not really a radical idea when you think about it. Advertisers should know where their ads go. They should be in charge of how their money is spent and they should they should have a right to check their ads. I'm curious what you think this state of affairs says about the online advertising ecosystem in general. You know, whether focusing on the individual ad placements is downstream from what sounds like a a much bigger problem, which is the sort of the structure and opacity and incentive structures of the online advertising industry. Uh, Last week, we had uh, Tim Huang on the podcast, and he was arguing that, you know, online advertising is broken, the market is a bubble, and that the opacity contributes to that. How do you think about your work in 
uh, view of the the larger sort of problems in the online ad industry. Tim Wang's book, Subprime Attention Crisis, is so important and it's short. If your audience hasn't read it yet, I recommend it. In it, he called for an ad tech watchdog. And Nandini and I both read the book and we both highlighted that same paragraph because his thesis is such that this is a bubble. It is it is a lemon market. Like you can't tell what the quality is when you're buying an ad campaign. You can't tell if you're going to be like what percentage of ad placements are actually of value and what's, what are not, what are lemons. So it's a lemon market, which means that the seller, aka the ad exchanges, has far more power within the business relationship than the advertiser. And his thesis is that the advertisers, when this really hits home, are going to leave the market. And this market holds up the internet. It will affect all facets of our media landscape if we are not careful. And so what we, what our theory of change is, as Check My Ads, as the ad tech watchdog, is to help bring to light things that are the most likely to dismantle the ad industry over time so that we can let the bubble down slowly or at least bring attention to advertisers so that they have the choice. Because otherwise, it's just going to keep going up and up. And I mean, bubbles are bad. So I'm curious how you pick what content to target. You know, one of the defining questions of the last half decade of the internet really has been how someone, anyone who should draw the lines for acceptable and unacceptable online content and what to do in the gray areas. You know, the, the name of our podcast, Arbiters of Truth, comes from, you know, the protests that platforms sort of disingenuously make about how hard it is uh, to make content moderation rules because they really, really don't want to be and shouldn't be the arbiters of truth. Uh, and there are some legitimately hard issues here. And so I'm curious, not all of them are hard issues, but there are some hard issues. And I'm curious how you think about that when you're picking which brands to target, which sites you want to draw attention to, and whether, you know, that's informed by what you think advertisers will be most receptive to, or how it is you go about picking what campaigns to run. Well, I would say that some of the issues are difficult and others are extremely easy. And what we're doing at this time is bringing attention to what we think is the lowest hanging fruit, the most obviously dangerous individuals in our society, people who are causing, again, real world violence and harm. And so uh, we launched Check My Ads Institute back in October. And just uh, a few weeks ago, in the, the, the start of this new year, we launched our Defund the Insurrectionist campaign, where we picked six individuals that we, that either uh, promoted, organized, or incited the J6 attack on Capitol Hill and are also funded by the ad tech industry. Many of these individuals have, or their businesses, have direct ties to ad tech companies. We're not just talking, you know, like the way that they post on Facebook. We're talking about shared contracts and bank account information. You know, they they may have sales reps within the companies. So this is a real business relationship. And so we want advertisers to understand that when they contract out their advertising to some of these ad exchanges, that their ads run the risk of appearing on this type of content, content that incited the insurrection. 
yeah, we are not playing in the gray areas here. We're like we're talking about Dan Bongino and Steve Bannon and Glenn Beck. Like these are very obviously brand unsafe people. They make money off inciting real world violence, real world hate. I don't have to tell anyone here uh, that hate crimes are on the rise. White nationalism is a concern and that there is a plot to overthrow the next election. Like we're talking about serious, very real issues and there, there is no gray area. And when we speak to advertisers at Fortune 500 companies, they don't worry about this as a gray area. They want to stay away. And, and again, the fact is that a lot of the time they don't even know until they check their ads. And so with this, with this campaign, what we hope to do is to, is to inspire folks in marketing and in advertising who have access to this information to get it. <laughs> we want to inspire them to speak up within their companies and say, hey, this is a problem. If Check My Ads, the ad tech watchdog is bringing this up, we need to take a closer look at it. And we want to give them the sort of, you know, permission to be proactive about their ad spend. Like Claire said earlier, this can be a bit of a diplomatic issue or people don't really understand necessarily what role that say Charlie Kirk had in the insurrection. So we're trying to really highlight the things that they did and the role that they played in this event and tie that back to you know, the advertisers and what their values are, and not just the advertisers, but the ad exchanges, which have in their own publisher policies and their own supply policies, legal clauses against working with people that it that I, I think I was just seeing yesterday, literally, some of them have language around inciting violence against the government, you know, clauses against misleading narratives, clauses against harassment, abuse, and so on. This is all in their own language. So we're not creating new rules here. We're not asking for anything that didn't exist before. This is this is there in writing. It is the ad exchange's legal agreement with the advertiser, and we're asking them to enforce it. So what we're doing is we're empowering advertisers to go to their ad exchanges and ask them questions and ask them to cut these people off on behalf of their customers and on behalf of their values. So I wanted to ask you about your your January 6th campaign. You've already sketched out sort of a little bit of what you're doing and what the goal is. Have you gotten any traction? Have you had successes? What's it looked like from your end? Yeah, the response has been surprising. So normally when we publish our newsletter, Branded, we are publishing a the story of a connection between an ad exchange and a disinformation outlet and the ad exchange usually ends up dropping that disinformation outlet. And this has been a very different campaign because we launched and immediately it was like everyone in the advertising industry froze. Very few people are talking about it publicly. I think we've made a lot of people uncomfortable. And we are watching YouTube dropped Dan Bongino but we're watching Google ads very closely to see if they're going to follow suit. Bongino is already talking about it as if it's a threat. Tim Pool came into my Twitter DMs and, among other things, said that we had lost him advertisers, but I didn't ask him for clarification. And we're sort of waiting and seeing, but we've the message has been received internally. I think they're afraid of making the first move. You have to understand that some of this is 
obvious. We can see it on the browser when we just click over to their sites and we can see ads. But what we're also doing is monitoring the behind the scenes. There are many companies in the advertising supply chain, and it's not always obvious what's happening. Certainly, I, I can't confirm or deny anything at the moment. We we do need to do some additional technical work, but we are seeing some changes on some of these uh, some of these insurrectionist websites. But you'll have to wait and see, uh, or subscribe to Branded <laughs> to get our <laughs> updates on on that. the The fact is that a lot of these ad exchanges, by the way, don't tell us when they're dropping a website. It's extreme. It's just astonishing the amount of shenanigans at play <laughs> within these ad exchanges. They will, you know, they will add someone like Bongino, and then in the the middle of the night, in the cover of darkness, they they'll get rid of them. And we have a few tools at our disposal that we can kind of see what's happening, but we, because we can't get that confirmation from them because they will not email us back sometimes, or they just ignore us. We have to use technical tools to be able to see who's still working with these outlets or accounts and who's not. Sometimes we get inside scoops. Tipsters are extremely welcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You would never have guessed your your uh, marketing background with the excellent uh, placement of the the newsletter name. Uh, very nicely done. What <laughs> us marketers? Yeah, um, I actually wanted to follow up on uh, how you track the success of your campaigns because it struck me as really interesting. You know, if one of the key problems is that advertisers don't know where their ads are ending up um, and the in- opacity of the entire system, it strikes me that that would be a problem for you too, exactly like you're saying. And I'm 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 curious how you get around that problem, like uh, how we sort of trust anyone when, when they're saying. So, for example, I was reading just in the Washington Post uh, today or yesterday. Yesterday, a story about Steve Bannon claiming that once he was banned from YouTube, his audience size um, increased by 10 and, you know, gets uh, so much more attention and, and revenue and things like that. Um, and I'm just wondering how we would can or trust any of these statements about advertisers saying they're dropping certain c- certain placements and things like that when the whole problem is that the system is so opaque. So the short answer is that you cannot trust anything that Steve Bannon says. <laughs> what was it just a few weeks ago? Dan Bongino came out swinging, saying that uh, that his revenue had gone up 134% since the time that we lost him six ad exchanges. That's an interesting business model. <laughs> Your ad revenues go up when you lose ad exchanges. That is frankly impossible. So uh, they're basically lying. They are. They come back to YouTube and uh, Facebook and Twitter for a reason. Those alternative platforms do not work. They do not have the same engagement or economies of scale. Once they are kicked off or deplatformed from one of these social media platforms or ad exchanges, their audience dips. Uh, I mean, it gets cut off real fast, and it's very difficult for them to grow that back, to get that back. So it's it's of tantamount importance of the, for them to uh, to stay on these platforms. There's there's a reason that Bongino said, you know, I'm I'm uh, leaving Twitter and then never left Twitter. Um, there's a reason that they come back to, and this is a little bit off topic, but I've I've noticed that so many of these 
these individuals, these bad, bad faith actors, they love MailChimp. They just keep coming back, even though MailChimp keeps kicking them off. And, and a lot of the time it's because I emailed them or, or tweeted them. They like the same services that we do. And, and they grow on the services that offer the best features and offer the most money. And that's the mainstream services that will kick them off because they have a greater responsibility to their customers and to their their stakeholders than than the alternatives do. Yeah, and you had a question around like, well, how how feasible is it to do like ad placement by ad placement? And the answer is not feasible, which is why we focus not on a per campaign basis, but we focus on the sort of evergreen relationship between the ad exchange and this purveyor of disinformation and hate speech. And we think about it kind of like a grocery store. Like you wouldn't put bleach amongst the peanut butter and be like, look at all this delicious peanut butter because that would be doing business in bad faith. And so when we find bleach, we point out that people probably aren't going there for that. And more often than not, ad exchanges do drop the disinformation that we find because they know that it's in their marketing materials, it's in their terms of agreement, that they do not work with anyone who incites real world violence. They themselves say it. So we're just asking them to hold themselves up to their own standards. Yeah, often what happens is they just, they'll just drop it and they'll never tell us. And we find out on our own because they they don't really have an argument against our work. I mean, we've never really seriously been challenged by the ad, the advertising industry, particularly these ad exchanges that we target. They they know that they're in the wrong and they're just doing it until they get caught. So we'll just keep catching them. Do you ever worry at all about this kind of strategy being used by people with a different set of political beliefs? So like I could imagine some world in which advertisers are targeted by a public campaign by pro-Trump groups or pro-insurrection groups if they ran ads on websites that were anti-Trump. That that seems like an approach that could be used by anyone, right? Oh, God, I don't worry at all. Not even for a second. We're not remotely worried because we always say this is up to the advertiser. Like, as an advertiser, you have brand values and brand standards, brand safety guidelines, and... If someone came to you and they said, you know, this website is not pro-Trump enough or it's too pro-Biden, then the advertiser and the ad exchange could both say, where is it outside of our bounds of our terms of service? And if they are outside the bounds, then then of course they have good reason to. But I don't think that this is a political discussion. We're talking about the bad faith publication of incredibly violent content and material. I mean, this is not a this is not a question of politics. This is this is beyond the pale. This is like beyond the political spectrum. I mean, a lot of our bad faith detractors will say, "So you want to ban everything that you don't agree with?" No, I don't want to ban anything. We don't want to ban anything. We just want advertisers to be able to look at something and say, "That's not appropriate for our brand." And right now they don't even know that their their ads are there. So we're just making that information available to them and they can choose what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to choose to to advertise on uh, racist or misogynist or any of that other hate content because they have a myriad of considerations that goes beyond advertising. They also need to think about 
their brand responsibility, that's one thing. And it's a bit more abstract, but they also have to think about recruitment. I mean, you can't get the best employees and you can't get the best stakeholders and you don't get the, the, the customers that you want into your company when you advertise on content like that. So we just, we don't worry. Advertisers, when given the choice, they will, they will do the right thing. Um, so from one thing that doesn't worry you at all to another thing that I suspect does not worry you at all, but I'd love to draw you out just a little bit more on these, uh, you know, the, the critics that say uh, you're against free speech. This is an authoritarian mindset. You know, you, you want to clamp down and everything needs to be politically correct. Um, wh- why are you against free speech? This is the purest form of free speech because, you know, because an advertiser has a right to put their ads where they want. You have your right to express what you think of that. And they have a right to respond. All of those things, including, you know, you know, Breitbart, you know, saying what it wants. Everyone is saying what they want. Everyone is expressing what they want in this relationship. It just happens to not work out financially for a publisher like Breitbart, but everyone is, is using their voice as designated by the First Amendment. I'm curious how how you think the the rise of sort of alt platforms that cater explicitly to a far right clientele complicate this. So we, we've been talking about Steve Bannon. Part of the story with Steve Bannon is that he's been deplatformed from any number of services, but apparently, according to the Washington Post, has found a, a sort of a stable home with a small television network and is breaking in the cash for that network. Does the ability of these personalities to sort of run their content on multiple platforms, jump from one platform to another, use alt platforms, complicate the dynamics of what you're trying to do? Yeah, we'd like to call their bluff, honestly. Like the advertising industry has universally rejected Steve Bannon and he has tried to sneak in back onto the platform so many times and he's been found and kicked off a lot of times, sometimes by us. And we celebrate their right to build their own private platforms with their own private ad marketplaces. And we also celebrate the right of advertisers to go there if they wish. And we can't name a single one who would. That's right. Steve Bannon is constantly sneaking his way back into the ad tech supply chain. We catch him every time. I feel like I've spent half a decade following him around and his little, you know, money trail. And most recently we found him on Real America's Voice being monetized by brands like GoDaddy and Norton LifeLock, I think it was, or Norton Antivirus and another one, GoodRx, GoodRx. And I tweeted about it. And I'm not kidding you, 24 hours later, they were gone. But we were really curious to see how these ads ended up on on Steve Bannon, because we know that, for example, GoDaddy many times has said, we don't want our ads on Steve Bannon, but they, their ads keep ending up there. If not as a video ad, it ends up there as a, you know, like a tabula or rev content type ad. So, so they do keep ending up there. And it's usually through some kind of backdoor channel or through a middleman intermediary. There's all kinds of little sneaky ways that Bannon comes in and these transactions are made in a way that you'll never see. You'll never see Bannon's name. You'll never see Real America's voice. 
we are starting to point this out that there's an agency called Performance One Media that does all the, or, or some of the sort of funneling of the cash in. So like Performance One Media will have relationships with ad exchanges and the ad exchanges pay out to Performance One Media, which normally like no one knows what Performance One Media is or whatever, unless you investigate it, which we did. And we saw, um, and we learned that it was, it belongs to Robert Sig, the same person who owns Real America's Voice. The average person, the average marketer will not know that their ad money is flowing towards Steve Bannon via all these intermediaries. And, and that's part of the work that we do. We uncover that. And then once that is uncovered, those ads disappear. That's how it works. So this is a little bit of a hard pivot. And the answer may be that this is not, uh, you know, not something you spend a lot of time thinking about, but it is something I spend a lot of time thinking about. And I can't let you go without asking you about another area where brand safety comes up a lot, which is to do with content moderation and the rules that the major social media platforms have about the content that they allow on their sites. Um, And the idea that users aren't really the customers of these platforms, but advertisers are. And so if there's a group of stakeholders that can leverage their power to uh, affect content moderation rules, it's the advertisers. But on the other hand, you know, Facebook and Google are uh, so powerful that advertisers might not have very much leverage at all. And so I'm just curious in, because you're obviously talking to a lot of advertisers and talking about brand safety and things, is content moderation area that comes up a lot? Is this something that they spend a lot of time thinking about? I presume that, you know, a lot of their ads uh, end up on these sites as well. And so how do they think about brand safety in those contexts? Yeah, they are also obsessing about this question. They don't want to sponsor or be associated with things that make the world more dangerous. And they think about it from content moderation and they think about it uh, in terms of influencers. Influencers are a big topic of conversation. How do you know when an influencer suddenly becomes brand unsafe? Uh, What is the rubric that you use for this and how do you communicate that decision? Those are on the the tops of minds of, of marketers right now. I think that advertisers are deeply frustrated by the content moderation standards that they have seen to date. I mean, we saw that with the Facebook boycott last year, and we know that they would like alternatives, and they know that we know that the system is not working for them as is, which is why we always say, you know, take 10% of your ad budget out of digital advertising, out of Facebook, and play with it. Be creative. Digital ads are in our field known as a spray and pray approach. Like they're not, they're not highly regarded as as the best marketing tactic. So why not exercise your creativity and try to think outside the box a little bit? So what's the end point here? Like what what does success look like for you? It seems like you know you're you're having success pointing out individual advertisers, sites, agencies. But that seems like a, a very sort of whack-a-mole solution to problems that you've acknowledged are are big and systemic. So if you could, you know, wave a wand and fix something about the underlying ad ecosystem that's causing these problems, what would that be? That's a easy and difficult question at the same time. If I could raise my wand and make one thing disappear, it would be vanity metrics like clicks and impressions and views. Those are the building blocks of digital marketing today. It's what we 
grew up on, so to speak. It's the only marketing that I have ever known, um, and as well as Claire. And it's almost like there's no memory of what happened before that. Marketers don't know how to run a marketing campaign without the metrics that require them to track and surveil their customers and their audience across their entire digital as well as offline lives. And it's not necessarily resulting in better marketing. It's not getting us to where we want. It's not good for our society. So I, I think what success looks like for us is building a future with sustainable marketing practices that are consumer first, that don't require monitoring our customers, and that think about marketing in terms of connecting with our audience in a meaningful way. And yes, I know that that's a vague answer, but we don't have any answers yet. I mean, we've only experienced this one form of marketing since the rise of the internet. We don't know what marketing looks like without surveillance or tracking. And it's something that I don't think that Claire and I should necessarily be answering, but we are ready to bring together a community of marketers and advertisers who are who are thinking up ways to do that. We want to create that community. We want to help to imagine what those solutions might look like and realize them together. Because we think that, you know, while there's a lot of conversation around regulation and what the government, the government's role in content moderation and and platforming and deplatforming and all that stuff should look like, we think that the solution needs to be equally coming from marketers. We need marketers to support a marketing ecosystem that is respectful to consumers and respectful to our own practice. And that's going to have to come from the ground up. That's going to have to come from us. So that's where we stand. Yeah, absolutely. And we started this nonprofit because we are deeply concerned about the state of the media ecosystem. And Check My Ads is just part of, I would say, a large team effort to try to ward off bad faith publication of anti-democratic political tooling. And we're working in tandem with so many people. I I think success for, for us is exactly what Nandini said. And I think on top of that, if we can work together to build, for instance, a news media ecosystem that is self-sustaining, that isn't losing jobs by the dozens all the time, then I would be so grateful for that. That's a good segue to something I wanted to sort of end up on, which is to circle back to the thing we sort of waved at earlier about the different conceptions of the kind of good content between maybe what advertisers want their ads to end up next to and maybe what we might think of as socially good content, right? Like content about Black Lives Matter or, you know, LGBT content. These are, you know, real examples of where, you know, content gets demonetized or taken down um, because uh, it's seen as quote unquote controversial or something like that. And advertisers just want to steer clear of anything remotely controversial uh, because it's just not worth the candle for them rather than, you know, the kind of stuff that you're talking about, like the the really not in the gray zone, uh, really bad sort of stuff. How we think about sort of focusing on marketers when we're thinking about designing 
you know, a good online information ecosystem. Because on, on one hand, it makes total sense because why isn't everyone talking about the advertisers? They're the ones that are propping up this entire system. And so they're the ones that can have material impact, you know, follow the money. But on the other hand, relying on brands and their reputational incentives and the fact that they're humans too and have their own value system seems kind of suboptimal in terms of, you know, designing the perfect online ecosystem. And so I'm curious how you think about those long-term dynamics about whether this is the way that we want the online sphere to to be constructed where we're focusing on leveraging pressure on brand safety as as the means of controlling what we see online. Brand safety is just a small part of the larger concept that where you advertise matters. And this is not new. In fact, we've forgotten about it only because of the digital advertising industry. If you pick up a magazine at a store, you can immediately tell whether that magazine is a respected source of information within its industry. If it's a photographer magazine, then you have the best camera ads. If you pick up Vogue, you're going to see the very best fashion ads advertising in these magazines because that's where they will get the most authority. And that's where they also offer their own brand equity to the magazine. You can trust the content in a photography magazine if it has good ads in it because you know that photographers will call out those ads if it's for a product that doesn't work very well. The geography of where our ads actually go is one of the most important parts of our campaigns, which is why it's absurd to us that we are letting a handful of companies with questionable business practices take over our campaigns for us and place our ads on our behalf. I think that getting back to understanding brand equity and and location is a huge part of this. It's something that has been forgotten for the sake of those high-level KPIs that Nandini was talking about earlier, click-through rates and, and impressions, which can easily be gamed and don't really mean anything. Yeah. And I think that looking at the bigger picture, the internet is disproportionately propped up by advertising. And we've forgotten that there's other monetization models out there. So we think that by poking a hole in the system, we will create new forms of monetization and ways to support content creation that doesn't like solely depend on ads or uh opaque, complex supply chain to get money. And in an ideal world, we would use what we have to facilitate direct relationships between creators and publications and advertisers. I guess we need to allow that to happen. And for that next form of the web to bloom, we need to, we need to break down the current system. All right. Well, as much as I would love to to stick around and talk more about what that might look like, we are unfortunately out of time. Najani and Claire, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Briggings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Hamza Shitu. 
Our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast and whatever app you use, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>